Amen. All right, if you have a seat, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. If you uh, have not obtained a study guide, then uh, we do have a couple in the back. We also have study guides for our previous series, if you ever like to listen or study them, on Habakkuk and James and Sacred Assembly, and they're all in the back. They're free on that bookshelf, and feel free to grab one. Um, yesterday I was thanking uh, the sun for the sun, and today I'm praying to the sun for the sun, so hopefully it'll come. I even wore my Jesus sandals to see if I could help, but it's not really having that impact. So never had an experience where you get up, you look outside the window, sunny, all right? You get in the shower, you get out, and it's dark. Like, what is this? So, hey, that's okay. We're actually going to hit first and foremost in the book of Revelation, which is maybe a strange place to start, but we're going to be in First Timothy 4 and start there. Uh, the book of Revelation, if you've never read it, uh, begins with seven different letters, uh, from Jesus to seven different churches, actual churches. And in these letters, Jesus both criticizes and comforts, depending on the church and what's going on in the situation. And the first of the uh, churches is, or first of the letters is written to the church in Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus is the church that Timothy, at this point, is pastoring and leading, and it's where we've been spending most of our time. So I thought it was relevant to what we're talking about. So listen carefully to kind of what Jesus says to this church and it'll help kind of contact, get some context to where we're going. Revelation chapter 2, uh, verse 2 and following, Jesus says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Verse 4, but, now when Jesus says but, you got a problem, but, but, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Now, false teachers of all kinds are in all kinds of different places, and I believe oftentimes, most of the time maybe, they're connected with the church in some way, or labeled Christian in some way. And they're on the radio, tune your radio to whatever station, you'll certainly find some. They're on the TV, and all kinds of stations, late at night, there's some real weird ones, and on the internet, and some like some of those characters on a station that will remain nameless, but I like to call Christian Comedy Central, are loud and colorful and strange, maybe. Then there are others that are a little more subtle. They write books. Um, they get endorsements for those books from Christian celebrities, and it, suddenly the book becomes popular, and it is often perpetuating false truth. Uh, some of the people are, aren't as bold to write books or to show themselves in public, so they sit in their pajamas and they blog and create websites that honestly look pretty accurate and authoritative, but in essence they put out false truth and false depictions of various theological positions, all the while teaching false things. So the reality is we're so immersed in stuff and there's so many venues for uh, communication to get to us, it is only a matter of time before a false teacher comes into your church, literally, uh, your home, your family, and somewhat disrupts your faith with their false teachings. 
And as it's seen in Ephesus here, everyone must always test what's being taught. Constantly test, and you must never, ever grow weary of testing. And this is what Paul is writing to Timothy to tell to the church to test and to kick out these false teachers. And according to the book of Revelation, they're doing a pretty darn good job of it. They become masters of identifying false teachers. And not only, excuse me, do they identify them, they kick them out. And the same time in, in this letter to this church in Ephesus, Jesus reminds them and, and reminds us of the danger of what we can become, which I like to call doctrinal mercenaries. And you become a doctrinal mercenary by getting very good at fighting false teachers, and you fail to fight for Jesus. Because there can be a difference. And the reality is that teaching in the first chapter that Paul did in 1 Timothy, our goal is sound doctrine. Our goal is that that doctrine does accord with the gospel. But our charge to defend the truth is not merely to become really polished theologians and powerful apologists. That's not enough. It is a charge for this. And this is a heart, I believe, of Paul. I think it's the heart of Timothy, and I pray it's the heart of the elders of this church. Our charge is not just to be apologists and theologians, but to see Jesus as supremely better in value than anything else. And to give Jesus central priority in our lives above anything else. And to find above anything else our ultimate joy in Jesus. That is the goal. And unfortunately, people again become really good fighters, but they don't fight for maybe the right things or the most important things. And sadly, in this passage we see in 1 Timothy 4, Paul is going to address people who at one time seemed to be fighting for Jesus and now have stopped fighting for Jesus. They still have their doctrines as false as they might be, but now they're beginning to fight for their false saviors, someone who's not Jesus. So I'll read 1 Timothy 4, and the warning he gives us, which applies to our church and our faith today. Chapter 4, verse 1, and we'll read uh, just about seven verses, seven or eight. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers... Timothy, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irrelevant silly myths, rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, the Holy Spirit, as he says, 
his personhood is, is emphasized here, expressly and clearly speaks. And today there are a lot of spirits saying a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And I, because I didn't grow up in what I would describe maybe as a charismatic um, you know, church, I went to a charismatic school, and so uh, perhaps it's my default, but people claiming the leading of the Spirit in the various ways, I've always been a little leery of. Problem is, when someone says, I'm led by the Spirit, or the Spirit told me, or this, it's like, how do you argue with that? So, it's not that we dismiss that. I do believe that the Spirit leads us today, but as Jesus taught, I believe He actually leads us toward Jesus, and in particular toward the things reminding us of the things Jesus taught us through his words and through his example. And so it's one thing for the Spirit to lead us to the Word of God, and it's an entirely different thing for a Spirit to lead us away from Scripture. And 2 Corinthians 11, in particular verse 4, is one of those verses that you should read and it, and it sobers you to the reality of what's going on in this thing that is life that is very much like a battlefield. And that's why I like the concept of charge. 2 Corinthians 11.4 is, is Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. And he writes in it that people are going to come. And he says that they're going to come and they're going to preach and teach a different Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. says those words. And many of you maybe have had the experience of someone knocking on our door or riding a bike. And they come and they speak about Jesus. And they will say things like, yes, we love Jesus, we worship Jesus, Jesus died for my sins. And you're like, yeah, sounds right. And it's not until you get behind what is the appearance of the truth to the actual theology and definitions they're using to find that there is a false Jesus. And there are lots of them. That should sober us to the reality of making sure that we're testing all things. In John, one of John's epistles, 1 John 4.1, he says, Spirits will come. Don't believe every spirit. He says, but test every spirit in 1 John 4.1. Test it to see if they are true. And the test is Scripture. To see, is this jiving with what we already know to be true, or is this some new revelation that isn't really new and paul warns that in later times people are going to depart from the faith in listening to these false spirits and later times or last days as peter also used is the time i believe that began with jesus first coming and is going to end with his second coming so we can confidently say that we are in the last days or the last times and until then until jesus returns there are always going to be bad teachers who stand up and teach bad things which amount to lies and false truth. And they will come and they will go. And as Paul says here, now the Spirit expressly says, and he most likely is referencing what the Spirit already told him back in Acts 20, right before he left Ephesus. And he sat down the elders and he said, look, this is what's going to happen. Through the Holy Spirit, I'm telling you, this is what's going to happen. And he said... In Acts 20, fierce wolves, not little puppy dogs, 
fierce wolves are going to come in among you. They're going to come into your church. They're not going to spare the flock. You see lots of bloody sheep laying around. And from among your own selves, which is scary, from among your own selves, men will arise speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. He said this would happen. People would depart, and it will happen and start from your own church. So when people abandon the faith, we'll talk about what that means, but when people abandon the faith, it is sad and should be. It is tragic and should make us feel these things, but it should never be surprising. It should never, ever surprise us that these things happen. We must expect, as scary as it is to imagine, and you've seen it, though. You've experienced it, maybe. Church leaders, close friends, family members who leave the truth and pursue false truth. I was raised in a family who all loved Jesus. I was raised to love Jesus, raised to worship Jesus, raised to memorize my Iwana verses. My parents helped out with church plants. Okay? We were very much steeped in church culture, for lack of a better term, in the experience of church. None of my family, from what I can tell, is following Jesus at this time. And they look at me as the black sheep. And I'm like, I am doing what we always did. But I'm the outsider. And sad, tragic, frustrating, angry at times. Not surprising. Not surprising. So the question is, how do you know when someone's departed from the faith? How do you know they're just like, you know, taking some time off, you know, or whatever? The technical term for someone who abandons or, or departs from the faith is to apostatize, you know, apostate. And what it describes is when an individual, for whatever reason, is separated from God after once appearing to pursue Him. And I don't mean... I'm not talking about, theologically, believers who have been saved by Jesus and suddenly lose Jesus, or more accurately, Jesus loses them. I don't believe Jesus loses anybody, ever, for any reason. But what it does mean is that someone who claimed to be a Christian, and I, little caveat here, very careful to identify anyone in this way. That's really not our responsibility. But it is anyone who once claimed to be a Christian who now renounces the gospel either, either through word or by deed. And Paul refers to this as someone who renounces the faith or, as he said in the first chapter, sound doctrine that's in accordance with the gospel. In 1 John, which again is a very powerful epistle, and I hesitate to preach it because it's just probably make me cry, but 1 John 2, and you too, says this, in speaking about people leaving, it says, children, it is the last hour. Same kind of spirit of the last days. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Now, we've got to be careful here, because I'm not suggesting 
are talking about being scared about anyone who leaves the church, little c. That is a, honestly a common cultic thing for someone who leaves a church and then they're going to go, um, you know, I'm a little worried about you because this is the one church and, you know, if this one's not true, so on and so forth. Not talking about that. There is a difference, I, be, I believe, between leaving the church as a wolf and leaving the church of a wolf. And you have to be careful to discern that through scripture, scripture not just personal opinion. But without question, talking about people leaving the faith, renouncing the gospel. So people may leave a church, and you've seen that. We have a culture of that, unfortunately. People leave churches often, go to different churches looking for different experiences or a similar experience. And they leave churches for, you know, particularly emotional experiences or for an individual they don't like or whatever. But we're talking about people who depart from the faith. Not to leave a church. And apostasy, that kind of departing, Paul talks about, begins and comes from bad theology. And a devotion to Jesus' truth, to Jesus and His Word, is replaced by what Paul calls demon truth. And I kind of like the black and whiteness of it. James talks about wisdom comes from one or two places, above or below. That's it. We don't like to be black. Well, it's just kind of a mistake. Clearly, there are theologies that are so terrible, they're so ridiculous at times that everyone kind of goes, "Yeah, freaky," you know, "Hail Bob Comet." Yeah, I don't think so. Okay, not putting a jumpsuit on and that kind of stuff. I understand there's that stuff out there, but I don't think those are the ones that are most dangerous. Most false doctrines have the sprinkling of truth in them. And you see that in the Garden of Eden. You see that in the temptation of Satan. They have these sprinklings of truth in them and it hides bad theology and makes them incredibly dangerous. Now, I've come to understand that a lot of false teachers can be fantastic people, but they can end up hiding bad theology behind a lot of things. Some examples. You can hide bad theology behind a bunch of good works. Like they're a blessing to everyone they encounter, they're really nice people, their family loves the neighborhood, they do all kinds of things for the community they live in, and you go, wow, how could that person ever be bad? Look at all the good things they do. Hiding a theology that is unscriptural, unbiblical, and dangerous behind it. Or, people make all kinds of claims for all kinds of signs and wonders, amazing things, people have been healed, Addicts have been, you know, freed, those types of things, hiding the bad theology behind some incredible claims and works that they've seen. Or, maybe more accurately today, is that you see churches hiding bad theology behind just a really cool Sunday experience. Where you come in, music's rocking, they got cool clothes and tattoos and everything else. And you're like, man, these people are cool. I got, there's lots of single, you know, people here. It's like, this is the place to be. Everyone's in all kinds of bad teaching behind it because you didn't look beyond the appearance and the surface. Bad theology leads to people departing from the faith. And false truth, I believe, is deceptive and blinding. And the truth is, not every Christian author, pastor, or speaker who 
throws down some Bible verses is actually teaching the truth of the Bible. And Paul says that behind every false teaching, there is some level of demonic activity. And verse 2 indicates that Satan has his human tools to use. It's not as if demons are coming down and saying, hey, and teaching things. You're like, dude, you're a demon. I'm not going to believe you. Okay? It is coming through people, sincere people, people that you like, people that you know, are, are likable. But as the father of lies, which that's what Jesus called Satan, he produces children that lie. And Jesus in John 8 was very you know, bold about saying to the Pharisees in particular, yeah, your daddy's the devil. And what you're teaching is, are lies just like your daddy. Flat out. And we're like, well, you don't talk like that. That's Jesus. He's the Savior. He can say those things and get away with it. It's very clear that he draws a line and says, no, these are wrong, and these are clearly inspired by demons. And demon-inspired doctrines, we don't talk about demons that much. I always like thinking about you know, horns and weird stuff. Much more subtle than that, I think, today. Demon-inspired doctrines without question come through the mouths of people. And members of flocks end up devoting themselves to lying spirits taught by liars. And he says that they're insincere liars. Some translations, I believe, will say hypocritical, which seems to indicate that they don't even actually believe what they teach. And for whatever reason, they continue to perpetuate what they know is not true, because maybe it's successful. Maybe it grows. And as I was told between services, cancer grows too, which is scary to think about. But he says that these lying teachers have seared consciences or cauterized consciences, from the word cauterized, burned consciences, seared like a piece of meat, literally with a hot iron. So when you cauterize something, you burn it so it's, so it's insensitive. The nerves are burned. You don't feel anything anymore. And so these guys no longer listen to the warnings maybe of brothers or at least of their God-given conscience that's screaming at them and they've learned to jam their fist in the Holy Spirit's mouth and going, you're like, no, they don't hear it. And so I tend to have much more grace this is me personally, maybe just because I'm, you know, cold-hearted. Much more grace for sheep that are in those situations, underneath those kind of people, than I do for shepherds who are in those positions. It's entirely different for a brother, I think, to be caught in sin and to correct him gently, and for a shepherd to be infecting and leading other people with stuff they know is not true. One needs to be taught, and one needs to be shot. I firmly believe that. And that may sound harsh, it may sound cold, but the reality is, yes, there's a lot of verses about gently correcting and loving and showing grace, but there's a lot more verses in the Bible that says, this is the gospel. This is the truth, and we are not going to mess with it. And so Paul now, in verse 3 to 5, gives kind of specific about what these false teachers are teaching in this particular church. And it really amounts, he talks about forbidding marriage and requiring abstinence from foods and all these typical things. And with as strong a charge as, as Timothy's been given by Paul, you'd expect to see something like, you know, 
the deity of Christ or, you know, something that's like a major doctrine. The truth is, a lot of the false teachers can have doctrinal statements that sound right on. But the evidence comes in how they apply much of the doctrine, how they understand the gospel. In this case, he explains how men have perverted the gospel. Perverted the gospel. The cornerstone to all doctrine with self-righteous legalism. Where instead of our acceptance by God being predicated on God's work and what He does, it's predicated on our work. Like not having sex, in this case. Or not eating red meat. Which are two of the stupidest legalisms I can ever imagine. But I digress. And I'll say that there's nothing inherently wrong with rules and laws. Okay? I don't want to be dismissive of all rules and laws. And laws are good. Laws are fantastic. I want a God who is lawful. We do have a God who has rules. There's order and not just chaos. And some people are gifted, and I believe it's a gift, with celibacy. Some people do choose to abstain from particular foods or drink. And some people make all kinds of rules, quite frankly, that help their faith. I have no problem with that. If someone chooses to abstain or to partake in something, to go, this, this helps me, this protects, fantastic. Romans 14, I think, is a great passage to understand those kind of choices that we make individually. And it says in the first couple of verses of 14, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Now, that's not a stab at all vegetarians, but if you try a good steak, it's pretty darn good, okay? But he says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, or vice versa. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. And so there's no problem with rules, with choosing to abstain, with saying that's too dangerous for me or it's better for me to... There's nothing wrong with that. The problem occurs when those decisions that we make become essentials to the gospel. And you create this Jesus Plus program. Now... Walls are always well-intentioned. Rules are well-intentioned, just like a parent with a child. I have walls for my kids. I have rules for my kids. I'm just not convinced that constantly building up walls or constantly tearing them down, building up fences to protect or tearing them down is always the best way to live like Jesus. Oftentimes, those walls that are up are there for a good reason. And instead of just tearing it down, you should ask, why is it there to begin with? might very well be a good thing. And others will disagree and say, well, I'm going to go ahead and, if I'm going to fall on the extreme side of something, I'm going to go ahead and fall on being extremely conservative because it's better safe than sorry. And my only caution with that is just because you have a fence doesn't mean you're safe. And you get this false idea of security because you've got your rules and then suddenly it doesn't save you. Consider this one. Consider electric fences, okay? And little kids. I was once a little kid, and I loved electric fences. I thought they were the coolest thing. Just thought it was neat to have, you know, electricity that can't really kill you, but you can, like, really make you feel weird. So I liked electric fences. 
So I was a kid who's in the woods all the time, and not many kids are in woods anymore. It doesn't seem like it's, you know, video games. Hey, a video game for the woods. It's like, no, get in the woods, build a fort, you know, kill things. So it's like, you know, good. But the reality is we'd go through the woods, and you, you would uh, run into fences. And it'd be a big sign to say, warning, electric fence, 10,000 volts, you know, and you're like, ooh. So we'd always talk some kid who's never me because I was very persuasive, where well, let's see if it's, you know, electrified. It's a kid, like, throw a stick, and I'm like, dude, you can't do that. You've got to pee on it, right? That's the way we convince him to pee on the fence, to see if it was electric. It's the only way you could find out, you know, what if I touch it? Well, that's not good enough. So whoever, you know, Timmy, whoever it was, it was Timmy would pee on the fence, and you know what? It wasn't on. So we hop right over the fence. Yeah, that's stupid, you know. Well, next time we come to a fence, maybe we do the pee test. Maybe we grab it. Wasn't on. You know, 90% of the fences were never on. So what do we do when we come to the third fence? We don't even bother testing it. Just jump right over. Which is very similar to what happens with legalism. Well, don't go to the fence. Why? Because this will happen. And then suddenly we go over the fence and it doesn't happen. Well, that wasn't why. You go over the next fence. And next thing you know, when you actually get to God's fence who says, no, this is actually a line, and you will have pain and suffering if you go over it. We go, the other fences weren't on. And we go right over. That's the danger of fences. Not to say all fences are bad, but when they begin to be connected with your righteousness and your acceptance by God, you're in danger zone. There's a problem. And false teachers, as Paul indicates here, are notorious for connecting particular behaviors with righteousness, quite frankly, because it makes sense that it's in this letter about false teachers, it's easy to control people that way. It really is. Instead of acceptance based on God's work, I'll just have you focus on yours. And you'll be so focused on your work that you will continue, and everyone else's, mind you, you'll constantly be pursuing your own self-righteousness. And honestly, this is the very opposite of the gospel. Paul says in Galatians that no one is justified by law, and no one will ever be justified by law. But it doesn't seem to stop us from making new laws. We make all kinds of new laws. I'm not talking about any law. I'm talking about the laws of self-righteousness, where we're basing our acceptance by God on them. And the only possible result of building new laws like that are one of two things, pride or despair. You're either going to set up a law that you know you can meet, and you work, 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 and feel good about yourself, really be saving yourself, and become prideful, looking down at everyone else, and looking at yourself, look how righteous I am, I'm a great Christian, ignoring the work of Jesus. Or, you'll build up a new law that you can't possibly meet, and you'll beat the crap out of yourself, because you feel like such a bad Christian, ignoring the work of Jesus. They're both rooted in the exact same thing. And they're both anti-gospel, taking you away from Jesus. So, the fact is, legalism, at its core, leads us away from the truth of Scripture, rooted in the gospel, and toward the words and approval and dependence upon men. Now, you go, well, why would anyone ever fall for that? Why would people believe that? Well, here's the truth. We all desperately want to be legalists. We do. Because being a legalist is very easy. 
It's a very easy way to live out your faith. Because with rules that someone else makes for you, you don't have to think. You don't have to you know, do anything but just say, look, just tell me what's the right and wrong, forbidden, commanded, and I'll just follow. Do it. And we become very dependent upon a person to give us a list. Without rules, we have to discern every moment. We have to think about every decision and engage with God on an entirely new level to ensure that we're actually glorifying Him. And so we walk this line between no law at all, self-indulgence, and this self-righteous law, what I, what I call self-denial. Not self-deprivation. Self-denial. Where instead of going, well, what can I do and not get in trouble? We ask, what can I do in this moment right here to glorify God? To bring Him the most glory. It requires that you discern way more. That you pray way more. That you're in your Bible way more. That you're checking with brothers in Christ way more. As opposed to, what's the list? Can't do that? Sweet, I'm going to do this though. That's really not on your list. That's why the legalist works. And it's not rooted in the work of Christ. It's rooted in our work. And false teachers love it. And Paul says that, you know, you start making these rules like, you know, abstain here and abstain there. And it makes you whatever. It ignores the fact that everything that was created by God is good. It ignores the entire gospel, basically, that says, look, God created a world and in it, what he created was fantastic. He created authority. He created marriage. He created food. He created drink. He created language. All the things that we make rules about, right? He created things good to ultimately glorify him. And what happened? We screwed it up. Sin came in, took what was formed, and deformed it. Ultimately, All things now, because of Genesis chapter 3, with our first parents there, is broken, it's fallen short of God's glory, and it's really in rebellion. People and creation. And so, creation's default mode, as is people, is to go away from God's design, to glorify ourselves, and enjoy whatever the heck we want. But the truth is, people and creation are redeemed and restored by the proclaiming of the truth of Jesus, who said, I came to make all things new, to restore all things back to a place where they're glorifying to me. And so we preach the gospel to people, and we preach the gospel through creation by aligning it back with God's design. So we don't say sex is evil, we'll never do it. We say, no, sex is supposed to be rooted in the gospel. Marriage is supposed to be rooted in the gospel. Food is evil, we better stop it. No, food is fantastic. We're just not supposed to pervert it and eat too much of it. That's what it is. Drink, that's a big one, right? Well, it's abused everywhere. But that's not because in and of itself it's evil. It's because sin has perverted it and made it evil. Okay? Has abused it. I think Martin Luther was the one who said, women are abused, but it's not like we forbid them, right? You start thinking, oh, this is kind of silly. Granted, lots of things are abused. Most things are abused and perverted, but it's because of sin. And the way to fix it is not to hide away and build fences. It's to proclaim the gospel. Now, granted, some people may need to abstain and protect. Maybe many people do. 
But let's not demonize creation. Let's demonize our hearts. Because that's the problem. And our hearts can even make the good works we do sinful. The things that we go, oh, Christians. You can be prideful about that. Guess what? Sin. We need to understand sin. We need to approach culture humbly because we know that it can fall into sin very easily. But without question, we don't just say, as he says, approach all things with thanksgiving. We shouldn't just be saying grace at dinner. We should be thanking God, directing all things to God. Grace at work, grace at play, grace when we talk, grace when we're in our marriages. We should be constantly praying and thanking God so that he might make things holy and glorifying to him. 1 Corinthians 10.31, one of my favorite verses because it takes you to the base level. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, which I think includes everything, do all to the glory of God. Which means, as Christians we are free to live, to enjoy, but without question, you can do things that are not glorifying to God, even eating and drinking. So our pursuit is to bring God glory, not ourselves. Which might mean saying no to something we want desperately. Because that's more glorifying to Him. Last things he talks about in verses 6 through 8. He speaks directly to Timothy as pastor. And so this was very important for me and the other elders, I hope, as we approach what our charge is as we talk about false teachers and legalism and all these things. And he says, if you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Jesus Christ. Thinking, this is what a good pastor is. Okay. What's a good pastor? A good servant of Jesus? First thing he does is put these things before the church. And these are all the things that he's taught up to this point, which are some hard things. False teachers, nature of eldership and leadership in the church, now legalism. I mean, a lot of stuff. It'd be very easy for me to go, yeah, I'm going to probably skip this passage today because that's probably going to upset some people. As opposed to saying, put these things before the people and you'll be a good servant. Open statement of truth. You want and need a pastor. And I say this for homes as well. Your home needs a a pastor. Not me, your first church pastor. To openly declare the truth. To boldly, courageously, unapologetically proclaim the truth. Yes, proclaim it with grace and gentleness. But just because your kid or your wife or your husband goes, well, I kind of feel like you're going to be tempted to not proclaim the truth. You must hold the line that they might be equipped with the truth and not make the decisions for them. But preach the truth. Don't placate. Preach. Which might mean, at least from a church perspective, half of you might leave. I'm comfortable with that. As long as I'm preaching the truth and doing so in love. He also says, good pastor, a good servant of Jesus, as he talks to Timothy, studies. He says that you'll be trained in the Word, and I think some translations actually say nourished. Trained and nourished by the Word. A pastor and a father or a parent doesn't just draw lines because they're personally convenient. A pastor, a parent, knows the Word. He draws the lines that God draws and not other ones. Granted, 
You will draw some lines at protection, but know why you're doing it. A good servant loves Jesus' Word, delights in Jesus' Word, spends time in Jesus' Word more than he loves the words of men. And lots of words of men come, both criticism and compliments. But he loves Jesus more than he loves his church. He loves Jesus more than he loves his bride. He loves Jesus more than he loves his kids because he knows the best thing for him to do is to love Jesus and they will be blessed because of it. Not to say he loves Jesus. Yes, I know a lot of you probably had pastor daddies and you got your daddy wounds. You're like, what are you saying? I'm talking about a father who truly loves Jesus. That's what you want from a pastor. And a good pastor, a good leader, a good parent has nothing to do, he says, with silliness. Doesn't mean he's not silly. Trust me. I'm freaky silly at home, okay? If you watch so much stuff, you're like, dude, are you like 10? Yeah, sometimes I feel like it. It's pretty fun. Okay, you should try it. So it's not just silliness. Doctrinal silliness. He doesn't waste time speculating about what's not in the Bible and processing and processing and processing because there's plenty that is in the Bible that we need to deal with. And there are countless pastors that put all kinds of stuff in front of their churches. The 20 million steps to be a good Christian or engaging culture through film. Those are all great things. I don't know if they're great things from the pulpit as most important. What is most important for this church and for your home is for you to proclaim the gospel constantly. Every Sunday, we should be pointing all things to Jesus because, quite frankly, we're broken, we're in need of Him, and we're useless without Him. That's what you should hear every Sunday. And the moment we start getting into, you know, honestly, Christian psychology, leave. Send me an email, have a conversation, and then leave. Okay? <laughs> After you rebuke me. And lastly, he says a pastor must consider or focus on training for godliness. The word comes from gymnasium, actually. He must get in the gym. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, Sam, clearly you haven't been in the gym lately, okay? Let's ignore the belly and hear the words, okay? We're not talking about that. Spiritual fitness. Training discipline, devoting himself to discipline spiritually. As he tells him, is most important. And no one likes physical discipline. And don't, I know you're going to want to check out like, well, this is written to pastors so I can check out. No, this is written to you. No one likes physical discipline, okay? At least especially when you're out of shape. It's painful. It's yucky. I know when I try to start getting in shape, I remember... When I was playing soccer a lot, like, you get out of shape in 72 hours. And it's becoming a little bit faster than that these days. But the reality is we don't like training because it's hard to breathe. You're throwing up maybe if you're actually working hard, but it's painful. It's not desirable. But the truth is, once you experience, everyone enjoys the results. And eventually, maybe not overnight, you grow to enjoy and be satisfied with the entire experience. And my guess is, we'll probably feel the same way about godliness, where the truth is, if you don't go to the gym spiritually, you'll grow weak and fat and be willing to eat anything, and you will do nothing. 
That's what will happen. And of the 15 occurrences of this word for godliness, 13 of them are in the, in the New Testament, 13 of them are in the pastoral letters, because that's how important they are. The pursuit of godliness is essential to the health and protection of the church. Calvin, reformer Calvin, said that godliness was the beginning, middle, and end of all Christian living. Godliness is not, catch this, if you hear nothing else, godliness is not reforming or our ability to reform our behavior. A godly person disciplines himself, but not in the pursuit of Jesus-like behavior. He disciplines himself in his pursuit of Jesus himself. There's a difference. And our genuine adoration and affection for Jesus changes our behavior. So we train like an athlete. Some of you are like, I wasn't an athlete. You need to be one. Spiritually, we work like a soldier. Disciplining ourselves to spend time with Jesus, to study the words of Jesus, to talk with Jesus, to know Jesus, to think about Jesus, fighting to put Jesus in the center of our life as Lord of all things, even when we don't desire to. And don't tell me, well, I'm just not a disciplined person. Wrong liar. You are a very disciplined sinner. You're very good at it. Some people more master than others. You hide your sin. You pursue your sin in ways that no one will find out. You're excellent at it. Very good disciple. I'm saying be disciplined for other things. The best thing. Jesus himself. Because the health and the growth of your faith, of your marriage, of your family, of our church is not dependent on your ability to reform your behavior, but in your pursuit of finding joy and full satisfaction in Jesus. Verse 9 closes us. He just puts a little period on it. The same training for godliness, pursuit of godliness, is trustworthy and preserving a full acceptance. So as you come up today and take communion, recognize what you're confessing. Not only confessing that Jesus is greater than anything you could possibly desire in this world, but he gives you the power, he gives you the desires, and the ability to pursue him, to be disciplined. Yes, at first you go, I don't desire that. How many verses do I have to read? Put that down. Our spiritual discipline is going to look different for each of us. But the one thing that's not going to look different is the pursuit and the goal of where we're headed. And that's to the cross, where you admit you're broken, where you admit that you are a very good disciplined sinner, and you confess, I'm all about you, Jesus. You're all I need. Let's pray. Father, we, I confess, and we confess corporately that First and foremost, you are the best of all things. You are supremely beautiful, supremely more satisfying than anything we could possibly pursue in this world. And I confess that I am disciplined to not pursue you. 
Father, I confess that it's easier to live a life with rules than it is to live a life where I deny myself and seek to glorify you. And I confess that I don't have the strength within myself to accomplish it. But because you've changed my heart, Holy Spirit, I have that desire. So I pray that you will flesh that out in all of us, that we might glorify you whether we eat or drink or whatever we do. Let us pursue you, Lord. Help us to know you, to love you, to spend time with you, to be completely satisfied in you. That is our prayer. In your son's blood we pray. Amen.